If you have your Bibles with, with you this morning, or if you use a pew Bible, that's fine too. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter four, or 7, verses 14 to 25. <clears throat> Miroslav Volf, a Christian theologian from Croatia, used to reject the concept of God's wrath. He thought that the idea of an angry God was barbaric, completely unworthy of a God of love, but then his country experienced a brutal war. People committed terrible atrocities against their neighbors and countrymen. The following reflections from Wolf's book, Free of Charge, reveal his understanding of the necessity of God's wrath. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized between, beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Right? So when we think about the Hamas attack on October 7th, it was one of the bloodiest in Israel's history with approximately 1,200 people being killed in just one day. And because God is loving and just, he will hold those individuals responsible for their actions. His wrath will be righteous and just. Now, I wish that I could perfectly balance love and wrath, right? I can't. I just don't. I don't have it within me. I try and I ask God to help me, but I tend to love well those who love me in return, right? And my wrath is not always just or righteous, it's, and it's not motivated by love for sure, right? I get angry and upset with other people because they're angry and upset with me, or they criticize me, or they do something else towards me, and boy, it's not, it's not out of love that I'm like, um, you know, wrath, being wrathful back towards them. It's out of revenge, right? And not love. And so, how about us? Are you able to balance love and, and wrath well? My guess is probably not. Because for human, we're fallible. You know, as we talked about two weeks ago, God was going to lay his hands on the Egyptians, and with mighty acts of judgment, he was going to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. God was doing this so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know him. The Egyptians were relying on their gods as their source of life, but the Lord was about to prove that their gods were nothing. The conflict that they were going to learn about, to, or the conflict that we're going to learn about today, was between God and the Israelites, of, I'm sorry, God of the Israelites and the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped the god and goddess of the Nile as their source of life, but they were going to learn that God is the source of life. And the same is true for us. 
there's only one source of life. And we're gonna, so we're going to learn today our big idea that God is our source of life. So as we think about that, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit it to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, to worship you, to learn from your word. Lord God, I, I feel weak today with this cold. I need your strength. I need your, your voice to be heard by your people today and not mine. Lord, every week, I just, I want your, your words to come out of my mouth. I pray that you would intercede, that if there's something I'm not supposed to say, that you would not allow me to say it. And Lord, if there's something that I'm fearful to say, that you want to say, then give me boldness. I want to represent you well today. I want you to be glorified. And so, Lord, would you open our hearts and minds to this big idea today that you are the source of life? Go before us now by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> so we're going to look first at God's instruction in verses 14 and 15. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look there. This is what God's word says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. <clears throat> and so we know that God knows each person's heart, right? The Lord let Moses know that Pharaoh's heart was unyielding. Now, Pharaoh refused to let the people go, and, and uh, McKay in his commentary says, in the power struggle between the Lord and Pharaoh, Pharaoh is, in, uh, transi is intransigent. It's a big word that means unwilling to change his view. He has made up his mind not to yield in any way. And so our first principle is simply this, that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God knew, knew Pharaoh's heart was unyielding, and he knows what's in our heart also. He knows if our heart is tempted by lust, greed, hatred, and anger. He knows if our heart is bitter and hard. He knows if our heart finds joy and gossip. He knows if our heart is crushed and hurting right now. He knows if our heart is genuinely seeking him or something other than him, and we're just putting on a show. He knows every thought and intention of our heart. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 tells us this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And then listen to this part. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows our heart. And we're going to stand before him someday and have to give account of our heart and our actions and our words, we're going to have to give an account of all of that. How many times when we are having our quiet time with the Lord that his word arrests us in our spirit? He's like, this is what I want you to learn today. You haven't been listening to me, but I'm going to just put it out here on the page for you. The verses that we read for our devotions convicted us 
uh, of an attitude that we've been harboring in our hearts. And in those times, it's important to cry out to the Lord like King David did in Psalm chapter 139, verses 23 and 24. It says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Have you, have you told the Lord that recently? Have you just cried out to him and say, God, search me and know my heart. Test and know my anxious thoughts. Most of the time, we don't want him to search us because we know what he's going to find. We don't want him to know our anxious thoughts. So maybe you're ready to take this first next step today, and that's to ask the Lord to search my heart and test my thoughts so I can confess any offensive way found there. That's on the back of your communication card today. You can simply mark that one. So you see, God knows our hearts. He also knew Pharaoh's heart, so he instructed Moses to meet him by the Nile River. That's what he tells him. This is probably something that Pharaoh did every morning. This was his routine. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 20, we're going to see that Moses went to Pharaoh in the morning as he went to the water. He's doing it again. We'll see that in several weeks from now. <clears throat> Pharaoh wasn't taking a leisurely walk along the banks of the Nile or taking uh, his daily bath in the Nile, because in that ancient Near East, they didn't take baths as often as we may. Maybe some of you are just ancient Near Easterners. I don't know. Anyhow, I won't meddle in that because that was a teenage boy thing. So, <laughs> Pharaoh wasn't going to check on the Nile's water level. Rather, he was going to worship the gods of the Nile. This was his daily task. The god of the Nile was happy, H-A-P-I, not, like, <laughs> not like being happy. He was associated with fertility. That's why he was going there. Pharaoh wanted the, the desert to be fertile. They lived in a desert climate. He wanted it to be fertile, so he was going to the Nile. The goddess of the Nile was Isis, and she was associated with life and magic. And so ends in his commentary says, the, the attack on the Nile was in effect an attack on Egypt's gods by the true God on false gods. See, here's the battle. It's not really between the Israelites and the Egyptians. It's not between Moses and Pharaoh. It's between God and the gods of Egypt. It was also an attack against Pharaoh and the Egyptian people because the Nile was the source of life for them. It represented their deity. It provided water for them to drink and for their animals to drink. It provided water to irrigate their crops. Again, remember, they're living in a desert climate. It provided transportation for them. And the Nile would flood every year and provide the water that was needed for the region. And this helped them also to set their calendar. They're like, oh, it's that time of year again. Here comes the flood, right? The, the Nile River is going to be at flood stage. So the Nile was their source of life. They needed it or they were going to die. Without the Nile, there would be no Egypt. And so we see that God is our source of life. Our second principle today is this, that God is pleased when we turn to him as our source of life. The reality is that we do not always turn to the Lord as our source of life, right? We may turn to the stock market, to the economic growth, to a new president or senators or representatives or governors for our hope. 
We're like, oh, if we can just get the right person in there, then everything's going to be grand. Life's going to be good. We may turn to medical professionals or medicine and uh, holistic approaches to deal with our health issues, and God can certainly use those things to help us, and He has, right? Sometimes that's how He brings healing to our bodies is through the medical field. We may turn to family members, estates, friends, the church, government programs, illegal activities, and other things to provide for us. God can certainly use the church and family members and friends and the government programs to provide for our needs temporarily. But we need to trust Him. For the long term, we need to rely on God as our source of life. And so maybe you're ready to take the second next step today, and that's to rely on God as my source of life instead of. What are you relying on right now? Maybe make that change today. And so Pharaoh and the Egyptians were relying on the Nile and the deities associated with them for their source of life. Moses waited on the bank of the Nile for Pharaoh with his staff in his hand. God had told him to take that staff with him. Remember that Moses' staff was also referred to as the staff of God. God's the one. There was no magic in this staff. It was just a branch that Moses got when he was in the wilderness one time. But it was God and his power being used through Moses in that staff. It represented the power of God and it pointed to heaven and the Lord who was the one ultimately responsible for the mighty acts that took place in Egypt. And so the Lord had a message for Pharaoh that he would communicate through Moses. We see here that, or that Pharaoh is the object of God's wrath in verses 16 to 18. Look at those verses with me if you would. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will, become, it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink, and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. <coughs> so when Pharaoh arrived at the Nile, Moses gave him a message from the Lord. He told him straight up, he, he, everything that God said, let my people go so that they can worship me in the desert. And favor, you haven't listened to me yet, so here's what I'm going to do. With the staff of God, I'm going to strike the water of the Nile, and it's going to be changed to blood. And because of this transformation, the fish are going to die, and, uh, causing the river to stink. And the Egyptians will not be able to drink the water because it is blood and has decaying fish in it. The Lord was going to change the water of the Nile to blood so that Pharaoh would know that he is the Lord. <clears throat> Now, the conflict between the one true God and the gods of the Nile would literally be a bloodbath, right? These God, this God and goddess of the Nile were associated with the water, with the river itself. And God's going to be like, ah, phew, bloodbath, right? Going to turn it to blood. God Almighty would humiliate the gods of the Nile by transforming the lifeblood of Egypt into death instead. God wanted Pharaoh to know that, that Happy and Isis were nothing, that they were void of any power to give or sustain life. He wanted Pharaoh and the Egyptians to know that he is the only source of life. That's what I 
want you to understand today that God is our only source of life. He's the one that caused you to be able to get up today and take that first breath when you're awake. He's the one that gave you the strength to step out of bed. He's the one that protected you as you drove here this morning to be able to worship together with, with brothers and sisters in Christ. He's the one that's going to provide your, your food for you as you go out to lunch today or maybe go home for dinner. He is the one who provides everything. He is our source of life. And so our third principle today is this, that God is more powerful than any other God. Now, King Belshazzar of Babylon, in Daniel chapter 5, we read about this king having a great banquet for a, a thousand of his nobles. He had the gold and silver goblets brought that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And everyone drank from the goblets and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron and wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the wall, right? And when no one else was able to tell the king what the writing meant, Daniel was summoned, and he explained everything to the king. Listen to what he says in Daniel chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But you, his son, that's talking about <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. So he's talking about everything that happened to Nebuchadnezzar leading up to this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. God was saying to King Belshazzar, he's like, I am the source of life. And the same is true for us. He is our source of life. All other gods are impotent. They have no power or abilities at all because they are made from inanimate objects. So maybe you're ready to take this third next step today, and that's to worship God as the only true God who is all-powerful. And so God was about to show Pharaoh and the Egyptian people that their gods were powerless, weak, and impotent compared to him. He would give them an opportunity to know him through the turn, from turning the waters of Egypt into blood. And so Moses shared the Lord's message with Pharaoh before he shared uh, the Lord's message with Aaron. In verse 19, we see that Aaron's going to be the mediator of God's wrath. Look at that verse with me if you would. The Lord said to Moses... Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. <clears throat> so Aaron would be the mediator, like I said, of God's wrath on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. The message from the Lord was that Aaron needed to take his sta staff and stretch out his hand over the waters of Egypt. This plague would be comprehensive. It included the Nile River, all the streams that fed into it, all the man-made canals for irrigation, all natural gatherings of, of, of water in ponds, and all man-made gathering of water in reservoirs. So natural and man-made is going to be comprehensive. And there's a lot of discussion about what is meant by even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. The original Hebrew does not have the words buckets or jars. It would read more like this in the original. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in wood and in stone. 
I think the best explanation that I read concerning the reference of wood, uh, to wood and stone is that it, it's another way of sim- simply saying that all water supplies on the surface of Egypt would be turned to blood. Everything above ground turned to blood. So the fourth principle of the day is this. God's wrath is complete and total. His wrath against Pharaoh and the Egyptians would not be incomplete and partial. They had oppressed and mistreated the Israelites for far too long. And now it was time to discipline the offenders. God's punishment would be righteous and just. Alexander says those who live in defiance of God should realize that he longs for them to repent. It's not uh, in the nature of God to oppress his opponents so that they are forced to their knees in submission to his will, even if such actions may be morally justifiable. To do so would make God like Pharaoh. Remarkably, as it may seem, God is even prepared to strengthen the resolve of those who stand against him rather than override their own free will. It's like God wants Pharaoh to repent and to know him, the only true God. He wants the Egyptians to repent and know him as the only true God. And so God's wrath against the gods of the Nile will be complete and total. Now, as I was reading commentaries, the question came up, did this plague affect the Israelites living in Goshen? We know from Exodus chapter 8, verse 22, that God tells Moses that he will deal differently with the land of Goshen where his people live. No swarms of flies will affect them. And so from that point forward uh, on, the plagues do not affect the Israelites at all. So when we see that God begins to deal differently with the land of Goshen with the fourth plague, we assume that the three plagues preceding that one affected the Israelites. And in most translations of the Bible, with the exception of the NIV, And in the original Hebrew, verse 19 is translated this way. Stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their canals, and over their ponds, and over their reservoirs. So N says the use of the third person masculine plural suffix, again not reflected in the NIV, seems to specify that this is the Egyptians who will be affected by this plague. (laughs) If the Israelites were affected by the plague, then they would have done what the Egyptians did in verse 24, as we'll see in just a moment. So Aaron would be the mediator of God's wrath as he lifted up his staff and stretched that over the waters of Egypt. Then we see that there's an obedience to God's instruction in verses 20 and 21. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. And so what we see here is that Moses and Aaron once again obeyed the Lord's command. They've been doing a great job. And this is a recurring theme throughout Exodus, as we saw the last two weeks. Moses and Aaron are obedient to the Lord's commands. And so our fifth principle today is this, that God is pleased when we are obedient to him. Now, we talked a lot about that a couple of weeks ago, so I'm just going to give you the principle today. There is some discussion about who did what and with what. Did Moses lift up his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials and strike the water of the Nile? Uh, Aaron took a staff and stretched out his hand over the streams, canals, ponds, and reservoirs. Was this Moses' staff? Perhaps the best explanation comes from McKay's commentary when he says, Moses, in verse 20, struck the Nile itself 
while Aaron, in terms of the instructions of verse 19, stretched out or stretched the staff out over the other sources of water in the land. And so it would seem as though Moses or Aaron used Moses' staff, the staff of God, and then he gave it back to Moses, who then uh, struck the Nile River. And as soon as Moses struck the Nile, God's power was released, and all the water sources were turned to blood. That takes us back to our fourth principle that God's wrath is complete and total. And we're also reminded of the third principle that God is more powerful than any other God. He showed his sovereign power over the gods of Egypt. The source of life for Egypt was now a source of death. The fish in the Nile River died, and the rotting flesh smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink the water. You know, as a child growing up here in Pennsylvania, we would go to my grandparents' farm in Orrstown on many occasions. I was always hopeful that they had some other kind of thing to drink in the refrigerator because their well water smelled like rotten eggs. It was sulfur. It was so strong. And I was always hoping it would be like orange juice or something else. Many times I had to drink stinky water. It wasn't a lot of fun. I found that if the water was refrigerated, it didn't smell as bad, and I could choke it down better. But I was like, oh, man. But what's happening in Egypt is far worse than sulfur well. And it wasn't harmful to me, right? That sulfur wasn't harmful. It just didn't smell good. And that was probably not the case, like I said, with the Nile River. It probably would have made the Egyptians sick. And so what we see is this marginalization of the supernatural. The supernatural is always hard to understand and believe, so we go to extreme measures to explain away the supernatural with the natural. And this is true of this narrative in the Bible. Some people, scholars, have a hard time believing that all of the water sources in Egypt turn to actual blood. So they explain it through natural phenomenon that happened in ancient Egypt. Let me give an example out of Hamilton's commentary. He's quoting Hort, or giving the ideas from Hort. Hort has argued that what transpires here is an unusually high and threatening rise of the Nile brought on by an excess in the flow of water from the, from the White Nile, especially, and the Blue Nile. The confluence of these produces the Nile. The larger flow of water... Uh, the more the red earth uh, each river sweeps along in its channel. Add to this movement of red earth the mass appearance of flagellites, which are microorganisms, in the water. At night, they consume huge amounts of oxygen, then producing a large fish kill. There you go. Supernatural explained by the natural, right? This is what happened. Just It was a large flow of water from upstream from the white and blue Niles. Nothing, nothing to see here. And the reason that the fish died was because of these microorganisms that are just sucking up the oxygen. I don't know about you, but I believe in an all-powerful God who's able to do anything. Nothing is impossible for him. Therefore, he can turn water into blood, actual blood, which would not provide the necessary oxygen for fish to, their, for fish to survive or for humans to consume. And here's something else to consider before we explain away the supernatural. Enns shares this in his commentary. The dramatic, even instantaneous nature of this act is striking. 
A naturalistic explanation does not do justice to the theological thrust of this passage. Were this merely a natural phenomenon, Pharaoh could simply have countered, but this happens all the time, Moses. Can't your God do anything better than this? But the fact that the magicians had to appeal to their secret arts, we see in verse 22, suggests that there was more here than red sediment pouring into the Nile. The fact that this phenomenon happened at God's command is the central concern of the biblical writer. The point is not so much what happened to the Nile, but that it happened as an explicit act of judgment by God on the Egyptians. The purpose of this plague, indeed the entire confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, is so that Egypt will know that I am the Lord. And so we see the marginalization of the supernatural through what the Egyptian magicians did. Look at the first half of verse 22. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. So the the magicians, I almost combined those two words, the magicians. The magicians, you guys, you can use that word, it's a new word. You can use it, I'm not going to copyright it, so... The magicians were once again able to imitate the supernatural like they had done by turning their staffs into snakes. And they would also be able to produce frogs, as we'll see next week. And if I were Pharaoh, I wouldn't want my magicians to duplicate the plague. Rather, I'd want them to reverse the plague. I don't want the water to be blood that I can't consume. I want you to reverse it. I would want them to turn the bloody Nile and all the other water sources back into water. The magicians didn't have any power to accomplish the supernatural. They were simply using some kind of trickery to make it look like they had done the same thing. It wasn't the same thing. It was fake. Magicians didn't make things better. They made them worse. We'll see that next week, too. They brought more frogs out instead of taking them away. And so Pharaoh's attitude toward God did not change. We see that in the second half of verse 22 and 23. He's ignoring God's wrath. Look at what it says. And Pharaoh's heart became hard and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not uh, take even this to heart. So he's like, no, not a big deal. Not going to change my mind. After seeing his magicians do the same thing, Pharaoh's heart just became hard, and he wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron. The Lord had already prepared them for that outcome. He said, this is what's going to happen. And Pharaoh just turned around and went back into his palace. He didn't take this plague to heart. Pharaoh didn't even seem to be concerned that the source of life for he and his people had been removed. It didn't bother him. That's just been removed. He still did not consider God to be the source of life. But God is our source of life. And we see the results of God's wrath in verses 24 and 25. <clears throat> and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. And here's the result the Egyptians had to dig along the Nile to get drinking water, which tells us that the subterranean, uh, below-surface water sources were not affected, only the surface water. And they had to do that for a week. They had to get their source of water from digging new wells. Now, 
Here's some application for us this morning. I don't want us to miss the opportunity to talk about the source of our eternal life. God is certainly the source of our physical life, but he's also the source of our eternal life. He created us in his image, but when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience, that sin extended to all humanity, as we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't reach the perfection of God because of that sin that we're born with. And we can't be good enough. We can't be good enough. We say, well, I'm a good person. God will accept me. Nope. None of us are good. God's word tells us there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks him. There's no one who turns toward God. They turn away from him. That's our natural inclination. And scripture tells us that if we just fail at one of the Ten Commandments, as though we've broken all of the Ten Commandments, and so if you even just start going through the Ten Commandments, you realize, uh, yep, I'm in trouble. And the Ten Commandments weren't there to, uh, for us to be able to uh, live up to, to be able to reach heaven. They were there to show us that we can't do it in our own strength. We need something else. We need help John, writing in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, says this, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, and he's talking about God, out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. But you see, God is holy. He can't be a liar. He's perfect without sin. And so what, what, what we deserve is a separation from God for all of eternity. Romans 6, 23, the first half of that says, For the wages of sin is death. It's not a physical death because none of us would be here because we're all sinners, but it's a spiritual death. It's a separation from God. We can't spend eternity with him in heaven if we have the sin in our lives. But we see that God loves us. Jeremiah 31, 3 says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. That's what God's saying to you today. He says, I'm drawing, drawing you because I love you. I want you to be in relationship with me. John 3, 16, the first part of that says, for God so loved the world, right? Are you part of the world? So he loves you. Do you, is, do you understand that today? Do you sense that? Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the first part of that verse says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. So he demonstrates his love for us. And so we see God's plan of redemption in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And here's the whole verse, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. There it is. That's what God did for us out of his great love for us. He said, I know that you're sinners, and you can't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. So I sent Jesus, my one and only son, who's holy and perfect without sin from heaven to earth. That's what we're celebrating right now in this Advent season and Christmas. Is Christ coming to earth for the first time? And he said, he grew up to be a man, and he died on the cross to take your punishment for sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus satisfies everything the Egyptians were seeking in the Nile and everything that we were seeking in our own lives. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39 tell us this. 
On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Are you thirsty today, spiritually? We can have streams of living water flowing out of us. It's the Holy Spirit. It transforms us. He transforms us on the inside so that we act and react and interact with other people the way that we're supposed to. John chapter 6, verse 35 says this, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me uh, will never be thirsty. The Egyptians were relying on, on the Nile you know, to feed the crops so that they can make bread, so that they can have water to drink. And Jesus says to us in our spiritual need, he says, I'm the bread of life. I will feed you spiritually. And I'm the water that you need. John chapter 14, verse 6. Does this one sound familiar? Listen to it. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's our memory verse for the month. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way to be in right relationship with God. So you see, Jesus is our source of eternal life. So maybe you're ready to take this next step today, and that's to accept Jesus as my source of eternal life. You know, as we review this morning, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to search your heart and test your thoughts so that you can confess any offensive way that he finds there. I want to encourage you to rely on God as your source of life instead of something else. I want to encourage you to worship God as the only true God who's all-powerful. And of course, I want you to accept Jesus as your source of eternal life. And as a body of believers, you know, we can ask the Lord to search our hearts as a corporate body and test our thoughts so that we can confess any offensive way found there. You know, if there's any sin within our body, we need to address it and take care of it so that God will bless. We need to rely on God as our source of life instead of something else. We need to worship Him as the only true God who's all-powerful. Lieutenant George Dixon was a genteel, well-respected man in the Confederate Army. In the early days of the war, his fiancée gave him a $20 gold piece. During the Battle of Shiloh, a Union miniball struck him. Actually, it struck the gold coin, which saved his life. The coin, soundly dented, was to remain with him wherever he went. It became his good luck piece, and he would often be seen kneading the coin in his hand. And where did Lieutenant Dixon take the coin? On to the CSS Hunley, the Confederate submarine he staunchly believed would break the Union blockade. After sinking the USS uh, Usatonic, I think, the Hunley herself sank, taking Lieutenant Dixon and his crew to their deaths. Ultimately, his golden good luck piece could not save him. Recently, the coin was found when the submarine was raised. Man seeks out and trusts in many forms of security. Ultimately, there is only one source of life and security, Jesus. And so I hope 
that you're encouraged today to turn to God as your source of life, to turn to Jesus as your source of eternal life today. Uh, he's, the, he's the only one that can do those things. And so as the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings, as the worship teams come, <clears throat> would you just bow your heads with me as we commit it to the Lord and pray? Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what we can learn through it. Thank you that you are our source of life, that your son is the source of our eternal life. We are so grateful, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that you would help that to sink deep into our hearts and minds today. Help us to turn to you instead of anything else so that you can prove once again that you are almighty, that you are our provider, that we can trust you completely. So Lord, we ask all this in your precious son's name. Amen.